I thought I would cover a subject that's very basic, something that many people take for granted. And we have a lot of new people over the years, and we have young people growing up in the church who may take certain things for granted and, and think of of uh, these topics as though it's just always been that way. And it depends on where you come from. You may be coming from outside the church. You may be coming in from a Protestant or Catholic background. And you may take a doctrine for granted as though it is true. And you may even think that the living church of God believes that doctrine when we do not. Professing Christianity's central doctrine that defines orthodoxy is called the Trinity. Yet this doctrine was not codified until the 4th century A.D. It was discussed as early as the 3rd century, or the 2nd century actually, but it was uh, not really codified until later on, late in the 4th century A.D. And it has been discussed and gone back and forth on various forms of the Trinity ever since that time. It has been disputed whether the doctrine is merely a formal statement of what Christ and the apostles believed or whether it is a new invention. But it should be known that no one can prove that original Christianity thought of God as a trinity. This brings up the question of the concept of progressive Christianity. In other words, that Christian doctrine was not fully set by Christ and the apostles, but it evolved over a period of time. That is something that is generally believed in the world, the world's form of Christianity. That doctrine, that the doctrine evolved over a period of several centuries, and that it continues to evolve today. And there are those who certainly believe that to be the case. And that's why we have changing ideas about such things as same-sex marriage, homosexuality in general, or perhaps transvestism. And when we look at the churches today, even the Catholic Church, the Pope has now come out, apparently in a uh, an interview uh, that, that took place some time ago, and is saying that we should allow for civil unions of two men or two women. And that is a dramatic change in the doctrines of the Catholic Church. And when you think about it, that's not all that unusual historically because Catholicism has generally gone with the wind. And that's why you have Christmas and you have Easter and you have various other pagan days as they brought them in to bring more people along with them. But it is shocking to hear that uh, reversal of doctrine uh, if that is is actually uh, totally reversed. One of the uh, scriptures that is fundamental to our understanding is found in the book of Jude. And this is something that I confess I didn't really understand for many years, because I never really thought of it properly. But in the book of Jude, or the letter of Jude, it's very short, there's only one chapter. And verses 3 and 4, it's a very important and profound statement. It says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you uh, to contend earnestly 
for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The doctrines, in other words, once for all delivered to the saints. And it's easy for us to think of that because of what we hear sometimes, getting back to the faith which was once delivered, which is kind of a concept of we need to get back to the 1800s or the early 1900s. But when this was written by Jude, he was talking about getting back to the faith of Christ and the original apostles. And he says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we read, especially in verse 3, that we are to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now that does not mean that we will not grow in our understanding of prophecy as an example as we get closer to the end. Obviously we will. Uh, there are doctrines that sometimes have been lost down through history, but it does not transform the Bible. It doesn't take what the Bible says and turn it upside down as some of these doctrines have in uh, more recent years or, and actually down through history. So this is a foundational understanding that the church must have, that the idea of progressive Christianity, the concept of evolving Christianity, is not a doctrine of the church. In fact, it is just the opposite. Now, many of us grew up believing that God is a trinity. I have to raise my hand. I thought God was a trinity. I never thought a lot about it, but every week when I went to to uh, church, uh, when I did go to church, uh, we gave the Apostles' Creed and said that we believe in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and so forth. And, and we actually said and believe in the Holy Catholic Church, which as a Protestant I always thought was strange. Why am I saying that? But that was part of the Apostles' Creed that we, we used to read. And it was read every day in church. It's just one of those rituals you went through at the time. But we never really proved the Trinity. And most people never prove it one way or the other for themselves. They just accept it because that's the way it is. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, okay, they're all one, but, uh, you know, they're, they're not uh, exactly one, but they're one, some way, shape, or form. We simply accepted that because that's what we were taught. That's what our church has taught us. Now, if you're a young person... You may not have been taught that. If you grew up in the church, you, you didn't. But we have many new people uh, around the world that probably never think about this. They just assume that we believe the Trinity, not because they are reprobate or something. They just, we don't always say much about it. We do uh, avoid it a little bit on the telecast if we want to stay on the air. In fact, when I wrote the, the booklet on John 3.16, it was a concern because right up front, you have to address the subject of God. And I know that one of the telecasts that Mr. Ames did, it was very delicate in the way he did it. And he kind of avoided it while he was discussing the subject. And we have to be very careful because what good does it do to get thrown off the air? Then you can't preach it at all. But in our writing, we certainly have to, and I've been surprised how little pushback we've actually had on the subject. But we have television stations that we cannot go on. 
We have halls that we cannot rent, camps that we cannot go into because of our doctrine of the Trinity. We went on, I think it was called the Church Channel. We were there two or three months, and then we were kicked off because some of the supporters uh, knew our doctrine, knew where we came from, and they complained, and we were kicked off that. This is a powerful doctrine in modern, well, not only modern, but in professing Christianity, and it is something that they look at very strongly. It is the central doctrine of professing Christianity, orthodox Christianity, as we might say. But when we go back and we think about it, we believed a lot of things that were not biblical that were taught to us by the churches that we attended. For example, Christmas. We all understand that, that we don't keep Christmas and we understand the problems with it. We have a booklet on the subject. We have a booklet on the subject of Easter. We don't keep Easter. We understand how that was a corruption of the truth. The idea that we're, that heaven is the reward of the saved, we understand that that is not the, uh, the truth. We, we do understand that we go to heaven for a short time for the marriage of the Lamb. But that's not our reward. Our reward is right here on this earth, and that hasn't changed. And, of course, that's a subject that has been covered in great detail. We understand that the wicked are not burning in hell fire to suffer forever. And what a comforting understanding that is of the Scriptures, that the Scriptures do not say that. We probably grew up, some of us, with the idea that the law of God had been done away. Uh, I never really understood that growing up until I started learning the truth, and then I had people trying to tell me that that the law has been done away. I, I really didn't know that until after I started learning the truth. But I'd grown up in a Protestant church, and we learned the Ten Commandments. Of course, we didn't keep the fourth one. If I'd grown up as a Catholic, I wouldn't be keeping the second one because I would have lumped that in with the first one and then only given the shortened form, and so icons or idols would not have been an issue as is done there. But nevertheless, the law of God being done away with is a doctrine that many people believe, especially here in the southern part of the United States. We believe that Sunday was the Sabbath day, or if not the Sabbath day as such, it was the day of worship. We kind of referred to it as a Sabbath, even though there was an understanding that the seventh day was the Sabbath. We could read that. I remember asking the question, well, why do we, why do we do that? And I was told, well, you know, you're supposed to remember it, but uh, we keep Sunday. You know, uh, it, it didn't make any sense even to a 12-year-old or whatever I was at the time. So why should we not ask the question about the Trinity, whether the Trinity is correct in Scripture or not? So today we're going to examine, examine the Trinity doctrine and see if it is biblical. And we'll look at what the Bible really says about the nature of God. Now, the problem in defining the Trinity doctrine is not small. Uh, it's not fully agreed upon by theologians. There are theories uh, concerning the Trinity that abound. Let me read a little bit from the uh, booklet on John 3.16 on page 3. And it, it gives a list of various Trinitarian doctrines. It says, how many people realize the questionable sources from which their ideas arise? 
And how many realize that the concept of the Trinity is just as controversial today as it ever was? Any student of the subject realizes that there are different schools of thought about the nature of the Trinity. Without belaboring the point, notice these headings from the online Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy regarding the Trinity. These are some of the titles of the the chapters or the, the sections. Modalism, Latin Trinitarianism. Now, under Latin Trinitarianism, it's subdivided into divine life stream theories, relative identity theories. And then there is social Trinitarianism, which is divided into functional monotheist social Trinitarianism, Trinity monotheist social Trinitarianism, uh, Coretic monotheist social Trinitarianism, group mind monotheist social Trinitarianism, and Mysterianism. And then there is uh, another section, negative Mysterianism and positive Mysterianism. Now, those are just some of the, you know, it's, it's hard to even pronounce them. You need a, a dictionary. You need to go online to, to really realize what these people are saying because they do not agree amongst themselves on the doctrine of the Trinity. And that's just, that's on the surface. That's not even covering everything. For example, when the Worldwide Church of God began to get off track uh, and they started teaching the Trinity, they would speak of water being in three forms, solid, liquid, and gas. And that was supposed to help us to understand the Trinity. Or they could say a man could be a husband, father, and employer. Now, that idea is rejected by most of the mainstream churches. It's called modalism. Modalism. God is one but has three different modes. And even within that, there are different ideas, different modes. For example, some think in terms of modalism that uh, you have God the Father in the Old Testament. God then came in Jesus. In other words, ceased to be exist, I guess, but he came in Jesus. And then after Jesus resurrected, the Holy Spirit is God. So coming in, in three different Modes. It's all just one God, but he came in three different modes. The Father in the Old Testament, Christ in the New, and then the Holy Spirit now. Or you have the other idea that uh, that God is those three different modes, but they're always in existence at all times. We also saw ideas that were presented, such as the, the uh, a candle which you have the candle, and you have light, and you have heat. And light and heat are not the candle itself, but creations of it. And so this is called Arianism. And again, this has been rejected uh, by the, the mainstream churches overall. The, the idea that Christ and the Spirit are creations of the Father, that the Father took part of himself and made Christ and part of that made the Holy Spirit. So, uh, according to uh, uh, Tertullian, he had pictures of this where you have a, a round figure and then coming out of that is another and then coming out of that is another. Then there's partialism. 
Now, this is the three-leaf clover explanation, where they're not distinct persons of the Godhead, but different parts of the Godhead, each having a third. So it's all this one with... In other words, it gets into very complicated, subtle differences, but they are very real differences, and these are considered important by different people. If you'd like to watch a rather humorous explanation of the Trinity, uh, if you look up Lutheran satire, I think Mr. Smith uh, turned me on to that, Lutheran satire, and they have a couple Irish fellows, uh, kind of like minions, and they're talking to a stained glass window about the Trinity. And it's, it's quite hilarious. Just look up uh, uh, the Trinity under uh, 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 satire, a Lutheran satire. But it actually gives a pretty good explanation of it and how they reject modalism and Arianism and uh, uh, partialism. There's also Latin versus social Trinitarianism. And, oh, you probably don't care. Uh, let me just go ahead and explain it. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. But it says, a very rough, this comes from the uh, Encyclopedia, uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and the article Trinity. A very rough first approach to the difference between these schools is Latin Trinitarianism starts with the oneness of God and tries to explain how then God is three. Whereas social Trinitarianism starts with three and tries to show how they're one. You know, when you, when you look at it, it's kind of ridiculous because the Bible is pretty clear about the nature of God. But how is it that Orthodox Christianity finds itself in such confusion? Other than the fact that we know who the, the God of confusion is, the one is the source of confusion. But I'd like to read from this article in the Stanford Encyclopedia. A little bit longer quote here, but I think it should be very instructive for us. It says, many thinkers influential in the development of Trinitarian doctrines were steeped in the thought not only of Middle Platonism and Neoplatonism, but also the Stoics, Aristotle, and other current currents in Greek philosophy. In other words, these individuals who developed this doctrine were steeped in the philosophies of pagans. When it says Middle Platonism or Neoplatonism, they're talking about Plato. In the middle time, as you have early, middle, and neo or new Platonism. And so they were steeped in that. Also the Stoics, Aristotle, and other currents in Greek philosophy. Whether one sees this background as a providentially supplied and useful tool, or as an unavoidable distorting influence, those developing the doctrine saw themselves as trying to build a systemic Christian theology on the Bible, while remaining faithful to earlier post-biblical traditions. So we must remain faithful to other post-biblical traditions, other traditions that came out after the Bible. It says, many also had the aim of showing Christianity to be consistent with the best of Greek philosophy. So let's keep up with the Greeks, the best philosophy they have. So let's, and, and these quotes can be found elsewhere. Another very good source is Erdman's Handbook of the History of Christianity, uh, from about page 131 thereabouts, 
uh, plus or minus a little bit there, has a lot of these very interesting quotes showing how the individuals who formed the doctrine of the Trinity as well as the doctrine of the immortal soul were heavily influenced by their background in Greek philosophy, and many of them were uh, philosophers before they became, quote, Christians. It goes on to say, still, it is contested, it's a contested issue whether or not the doctrine can be deduced or otherwise inferred from the Christian Bible. And so they say they must turn to it. Even if the doctrine had a non-Christian origin, it would not follow that it is false or unjustified. It could be that through Philo or whomever, God revealed the doctrine to the Christian church. Now think about that. When you, when you look at the shaky foundation upon which this doctrine and so many other doctrines are, are found, we ought to be properly skeptical of it. And this is good for those who are new, but again, some of you grew up in the church or are growing up in the church, and you need to understand where some of these things come from. You need to understand the shaky doctrines that are out there and not be fooled by them. Because there was a time in the worldwide church of God when somebody came along back in the early 1990s and said that, well, God is like a three-leaf clover or he's like a candle where you have the candle and you have light and you have heat. And they began to teach these foolish things and they sounded good on the surface and tens of thousands of people swallowed that hogwash. We need to know what the Bible truly says. Now, if you'd like more information on the subject of the men who are behind the idea of the Trinity and other uh, important things, then I, I send you to uh, the book John 3.16, Hidden Truths, the Golden Verse, Chapter 1. Not that long of a, a chapter, but it gives some very useful information. And I don't really recommend that you get too deep into the subject, you know, you can start reading all this stuff out there, and it gets into metaphysics and the idea of, of nature and matter and so forth, and you, you get into a, a really just a, a quagmire of ideas. And where are you going to learn the truth? It's going to be from the church of God. You know, if you, you read there that the, the foundation, the, the bulwark, is a living, uh, the church of the living God. That's where we're to turn to. Now, you have to prove all these other things in general. You have to know where God is working. But when we know that Christmas and Easter and, and uh, the, you know, all these other doctrines are incorrect, then should we start to look for one doctrine out there as though the world is going to help us to understand it? Uh, I don't think so. Now, some of the scriptures are used by Trinitarians. And uh, I, the first one I want to mention here is, is really understood by most scholars to be inaccurate. But there are even some uh, sources uh, that still want to hang on to this passage of Scripture. And mostly it's people who don't know much of the background of the Bible who want to point this out, and that is 1 John 5 and verse 7 and verse 8. So let's turn over there to 1 John 5, verses 7 and 8, and let's read it for what it says, and let's understand it as it should be understood. 1 John 5, verse 7, it says, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, 
the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Now that sounds very Trinitarian. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. So what is the problem here? What is the explanation here? Well, Adam Clark's commentary was just one of, I don't know how many, uh, you know, how many sources you go to, explains the problem. It says, it is likely this verse is not genuine. It is wanting or lacking in every manuscript of this epistle written before the invention of printing. One accepted. Now, there's one exception to that. The others which omit this verse amount to 112. So you have 112 manuscripts before printing that don't have it, and you have one that has it. It is wanting in both the Syriac, all the Arabic, Ethiopic, the Coptic, Sahidic, uh, Armenian, Slavonian, etc., and a word in all the ancient versions but the Vulgate. And even of this version, many of the most ancient and correct manuscripts have it not. It is wanting also in all the ancient Greek fathers. Uh, it's been said, I don't know how true this is, but I've read this before, that even if you didn't have the Bible, the New Testament, it is so heavily quoted and other sources that you could actually reconstruct the Bible just from the quotes and other sources. Well, whether that's accurate, I don't know. I haven't tried to prove that one way or the other, but it has been stated. And the point is that you have many other sources besides the direct manuscripts of the Bible. You have other writings in their quotes and so forth, and it's lacking in them. And so virtually all scholars recognize that a portion of these verses is spurious. It's not to be, it should not be there. Uh, a gloss, I think, is the word that they sometimes use. They have uh, this uh, uh, vocabulary that's, that's used there. So how should this read? In other words, this is what is missing from the the majority of the sources, the overwhelming majority of the sources. And you'll notice that in most of your modern translations, this is missing. Only in the King James, the New King James, uh, have they hung on to this. But even the margin, my margin says here, uh, it, it omits the words from in heaven, in verse 7, through on earth, in verse 8. Only four or five very late manuscripts contain these words in Greek. In other words, after the time of printing, only about four or five have them, and most of them do not. So here's how it should read. Verse 7, for there are three that bear witness. Now, skip from there all the way down to verse 8 where it says, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Now, the water and the blood are not persons, and so why would we think that the Spirit is a person any more than the others? So it should read, there are three that bear witness, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. They're all saying the same thing, or they're all promoting the same concept or idea. So this is one of those passages that is very easily shown to be uh, a, a gloss or a problem that even in the New King James or the Old King James, if you have a marginal reference, it usually shows that these 
words were not in the originals, that uh, there were, you know, a, a very few copies, and they were much later on, that put this in there. And so you have to ask the question, why? Why was this section of Scripture inserted? Well, I think the obvious answer is they were trying to prove something that they couldn't prove anyplace else. And it just seemed like it was a good place to insert this because it's talking about three and one and that sort of thing. And so it would, it would fit in with their, their ideas. This should not be there. Another passage that is perhaps a little bit more problematic in, in a certain way because it is legitimate is over in Matthew the 28th chapter and verse 19. And it doesn't prove a trinity in any way, shape, or form, but it can sound like it. Here in Matthew 28, verse 19, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of, or as it should be, into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we explain this, when people are being baptized, at least I always try to make sure that people understand this, that they understand that God is not a trinity. You know, God the Father is the one that calls us. Jesus Christ is the one that died for us, that shed his blood on our behalf. And the Holy Spirit is a power that flows out from the Father and the Son. And we'll see that a little bit more as we go through this, uh, this section. But is the power that flows out through which Christ can live his life in us. That Christ lives his life in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not as a person, but by that power. So this... Uh, does not really prove it one way or the other, and there are those who who recognize this to be the case, that it is is not uh, directly a proof one way or the other, but uh, they sometimes quote this as, as a proof, although they really recognize it doesn't prove it. Now, something that bothers, I think, our members, especially as we go through, or not bothers, but just question a question that comes up, uh, every year at the Passover, we read the words of Jesus on the night in which he was crucified. And we often read from the 14th chapter uh, of John, the book of John, the 14th chapter, and verse 36, or yeah, 26, I'm sorry, beginning of verse 26. It says, but the helper, and my margin has comforter, Greek parakletos, uh, the, the helper, the, the original is the parakletos, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So here it sounds as though there is a, a being who is going to come and bring th- all things to our remembrance. And it speaks of him as a person when it says he. Well, <clears throat> notice this parakletos and just as in the uh, the Spanish, uh, the ending of a noun uh, gives an indication whether it is negative, I'm uh, not negative, but whether it is uh, masculine or whether it is feminine. So if I see in Spanish la silla, I think that means the chair. I think that I'm not seeing Mr. Okay, I'm seeing somebody nodding ahead. No Spanish. Okay, I'm looking back at Mr. Hernandez, and I don't know, maybe he's... He's not nodding his head one way or the other, but I, I'm pretty sure this. Uh, La Silla is the chair. Now, uh, it ends with an A, and when it ends with an A, a noun ends with an A, it's, 
at least most of the time, if not always, um, a feminine noun. Now, a chair. We would say, what's feminine about a chair? Well, you know, even in English, we sometimes refer to the, the good ship, and we say she, we, we rarely refer, refer to a, a ship as a he, it's usually she. Uh, but uh, in, in some of these other languages, nouns express gender, masculine, feminine, or in some cases, uh, neutral. Now, if it ends in an O in Spanish, it's masculine. If it ends in an A, it is feminine. If it ends in E or something else, I'll let uh, our Spanish-speaking brethren tell us about that. I think there is kind of a, a neutral one there. But just because it is a masculine or feminine pronoun to match the noun does not mean that it is a person. A chair is not a person. A house, uh, I think La Casa, uh, is not a person. And and all the nouns have some sort of uh, la cerveza, that's beer. Uh, you know, that, that's uh, la, that's, that's uh, feminine as well, although mostly men have traditionally drunk it. So what is masculine about beer other than the people that enjoy it? So if we understand language, the translators have translated it using the pronoun in this case where in most cases they do not give a masculine or feminine pronoun to the nouns. But they have in this particular case because that reflects their bias. Chapter 16, verse 13. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. Now that certainly sounds like a person, doesn't it? He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Now, when we read that, oftentimes, as ministers, we change the he to it, recognizing that it is not a person. But that really doesn't totally answer the question when we think about it. But there is a very valid explanation for it, and that's called personification. A personification is a verb that means to attribute a personal nature or human characteristics to something non-human. Now, does the Bible ever do that? Well, I would say it's doing it here, but do we have any examples of it? Well, we do back in the book of Psalms as an example. Let's go back to, I'm sorry, Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, the eighth chapter. Proverbs 8. And here we have an example of what we call personification. It says, Does not wisdom cry out, and understanding lift up her voice? Now, wisdom, we, we understand, is not a person, unless you have a person by that name. We had a lady up in, in the Toronto congregation that was named Mrs. Wisdom, but uh, most of the time we don't think of wisdom as a person, do we? And that's not how it's used here. It says, does not wisdom cry out? Well, human beings, animals can cry, cry out. But how does wisdom cry out? And understanding, lift up her voice. Does understanding actually have a voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill. 
beside the way where the paths meet, she cries out by the gates at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors. To you, O men, I call. This is speaking of wisdom and understanding. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. And then it gives certain advice here from wisdom, from understanding. So it is using human characteristics for something that is non-human. In the ninth chapter, we have, I've just skipped over the rest of chapter 8, but let's go on to the ninth chapter of Proverbs. And verse 1, it says, Wisdom has builded or built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. Now, how does wisdom build her house? Well, in, in this case, it's saying wisdom is, is a she, and she has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. She has sent out her maiden. She cries from the highest places of the city. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, come, eat my bread. So we see here that that wisdom is personified. And when we really understand the Holy Spirit in the book of John... And we understand the nature of the Holy Spirit from other scriptures that are very clear about it. We realize that John was using personification there. Now, can we absolutely say that it's personification and that uh, personification proves that the Trinity is not true? Uh, not necessarily. But when we look at all of the evidence, we see that personification is certainly the best explanation of this. I'd like to read again from John 3.16, Hidden Truths of the Golden Verse. I'm going to uh, read concerning these chapters in, in John where it seems to, where it personifies the Holy Spirit. This is on page 7, the, the bottom half of it. It says, Now does anyone think wisdom is a person? Of course not says, does personification by itself prove that the Holy Spirit is not a person? Perhaps not, if that were the only reason for such belief. But there are many other reasons not to ascribe personhood to the Holy Spirit. Additionally, we must note that the Holy Spirit is seen as being poured out. Do we normally think of a person as being poured out? Acts, the 10th chapter, verse 45. And as the power of God... Uh, that's from Luke, the first chapter, verse 35, or Romans 15, 13. You don't have to try to keep up, write all these things down. Just go to the, you know, the bottom half of page 7, and it gives you all the verses. It is also described metaphorically as wind. That's found in Acts 2, verse 2, and John 20, verse 22, and water, John 7, verses 37 to 39. When Jesus said he would send the Helper... In John 14, he finished the thought in the next verse, uh, verse 18, where it says, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Now, that's a very uh, critical point there. He says, I'm not going to leave you orphans, I will come to you. The Holy Spirit is the power that flows out from God the Father and Jesus Christ. It is the agent through which Christ would come to them. So it says, I'm not going to leave you orphans, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and I will come to you. In other words, come to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And through which Paul could proclaim, Christ lives in me. 
Galatians 2.20. It is the spirit of truth that will guide us into truth. Uh, that's found in John 16, verses 13 and 14. It's the spirit of truth that will guide us into truth. Just as wisdom instructs us, back in Proverbs, the ninth chapter. So, I, I, again, I, I just recommend that you read that booklet if you haven't, or review it, because it gives some very important information that... Uh, helps us to understand the very nature of God and what it is not. We also have other evidence. For example, Paul's and John's epistles. If you look at Romans, the first chapter, Romans 1, and in verse 7, says, To all who are in Rome... Beloved of God, this is Romans 1, 7, called to be saints. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a little bit of an insult to the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit is a person because Paul leaves him out. He says, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But he doesn't say anything about grace to you and peace from the Holy Spirit. You know, that's interesting because in 13 of Paul's epistles, he uses the same expression or a very similar expression at the beginning as part of his greetings. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, notice over in 1 Corinthians. Now, this is, this is verse 7 of Romans, but it is always within the first seven verses, usually the second and third verse, and in one case, at least the first verse, he says that. But notice over in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, verse 3. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there again, the Holy Spirit is left out. And 13 times, the Apostle Paul, out of his 14 letters, if we include Hebrew, Hebrews, 13 times he addresses his audience, whether it be the church or whether it be Timothy or Titus, he addresses them, sending peace and grace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and never once refers to the Holy Spirit. What an insult, if the Holy Spirit is a person. But it's a pretty good indication that the Apostle Paul didn't think of, of uh, the Holy Spirit as a person. What about 1 John 1? 1 John 1. Now, this is one that we don't always think of, but it's a very important statement here. First John 1, and in verse 3 it says, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. No Trinity here. Our fellowship is with one another and with God the Father and with Jesus Christ. But there's nothing stated there about our fellowship of the Holy Spirit in that context. It speaks of the fellowship of the Spirit elsewhere, but in other words, God's Spirit in us, uh, the Christ and, and the Father, but He does not address His audience in that way. What about Mark, the first chapter, uh, Matthew, the first chapter? Let me try that again. Matthew 1. Here's a bit of a problem depending on which form of the Trinity you believe in. 
I guess if you believe in the four-leaf clover, it's possible, although um, it's problematic, really, for all of them. In Matthew, the first chapter, and verse 20, Matthew 1, 20, But while he thought, this is Joseph, about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, if the Holy Spirit is a person, then the Holy Spirit is a father of Jesus. But if the Holy Spirit is a power that flows out from God, then we can understand this properly. But it's a problem for the Trinity. Now, you say that, and Trinitarians say, well, you just don't understand the Trinity. I have yet to hear how that changes the the discussion. Uh, But the fact is, our response would be, well, do you understand the Trinity? Because obviously, based on theologians and scholars, they don't agree about the Trinity. So we're in pretty good company, I guess, if we don't understand the Trinity. It's a... You know, as a straw man, it, it, it is not the right argument there that you don't understand the Trinity. No. If the, uh, if Christ is conceived of the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit would be the Father, not the Father. It's a bit of a problem. Uh, whether they accept that or not is another matter. So what does the Bible actually tell us about the nature of God? What is the nature of God? How can we understand the way that God is. Well, in the January-February Tomorrow's World, January-February 2009, uh, article by Dr. Roderick C. Meredith titled, Who was the God of the Old Testament? He says, Genesis 1.1, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So scholars know that the Hebrew word, or all scholars know that the Hebrew word here translated God is Elohim, a plural noun like church or family, as would signify one family with several members. And now notice Genesis 1 and verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I was trying to figure that out a little bit in the sermonette uh, where, where Mr. Uh, Dawson was going, and I, I finally figured out, okay, he's talking about what happened on the sixth day. Maybe he said that and I just missed it. But he's talking about the sixth day, the preparation day for the Sabbath. Very interesting point that he was making there. But uh, we have this passage here over, you know, subdue all these things. He says, note that God said, let us make man in our image. So the Father and the Logos, or Word, who later was born as Jesus of Nazareth, were both included here, acting for the one we call God, the Father. The one who became Jesus Christ was used by the Father from the beginning in dealing with mankind. Now, I would refer you to that article. Again, that's uh, the uh, 2009 Tomorrow's World, January, February. 
who is the God of the Old Testament by Dr. Meredith. That's a profound truth that we understand that even scholars in the world should know, whether they'll admit it, but they never say it that way. I never learned that when I was coming up in in the Protestant religion. I've never uh, heard any, any Protestants say that, although I'm sure that there are those who know it. But they leave that out because they want to make the God of the Old Testament harsh, cruel. But now Jesus comes along and He's the God of love. When in reality, there's verse after verse that shows us that Jesus was the God of the Old Testament. First Corinthians, the 10th chapter and verse 4. And that rock that followed them was Christ. Speaking of in the wilderness. It's, it's interesting. I got an email this morning from some individual out there, and I forget, he had three letters after his name, and they stood for something like a, a personal uh, research institute or something, whatever it was. And he was trying to do away with First John, uh, with First uh, Corinthians, the 10th chapter, verse 4. He was trying to show that it meant something that it didn't. And um, so the, the whole subject was uh, who, who was the rock that uh, Christ was speaking of in Matthew 16. It's amazing how many individuals out there have their own ideas. They don't agree with hardly anybody else, but they've got their own ideas. And we, we have people from time to time that come up with a new doctrine that they want to promote. And they think that it's, it's the exact truth, even though nobody else agrees with them. Uh, we had a, a, an individual one area that uh, came up with his really cockeyed ideas, writing a book. It was 184 pages, I think, last I heard, and he was still working on it. But he admitted that nobody in any church really agreed with his, at least any of the churches of God, agreed with him. But after 30 years in the church, and he was in his 70s at the time, probably closer to 80 now, he's off on this tangent and thinking he's the only person that understands these things. It's, it's amazing how people do not understand how God works. And he doesn't just use anybody to come up with some new profound doctrine. We see in Scripture two clearly distinct pers- personalities in the Bible. How refreshing it is when we read John, the first chapter, and verse 1. And I know you're all familiar with this. But it's so refreshing when you when you delve into Trinitarianism and you read all these conflicting ideas and then you just read what God says in His Word. Verse 1, John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the Word here is Logos. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, my wife and I are both Weston. She is Carol Weston, and I'm Gerald Weston. We're one family, Uh, you know, just two of us, but we're family, that relationship, one marriage. So we're both Weston. We're two separate people, but we're one family. And when we understand that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that's not that all, all that difficult to understand. He was in the beginning with God. 
And all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So the word, the Logos, was the one who made all things. And we could turn to Hebrews, the first chapter, first few verses. We could turn to Ephesians 3, verse 9. Uh, you could turn over to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. Uh, there, there are a number of scriptures that show that Jesus Christ was the God of the Old Testament. We know that no one has seen God the Father at any time. You read that in the book of uh, John, the first chapter and the fifth chapter. No one's seen God at any time. But we know that, that uh, the, the children of Israel, 74 people, Moses, uh, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders, saw the God of Israel and ate, and they were able to live. And so they saw Jesus Christ, the one who became Jesus Christ, the Logos, the spokesman, in an unglorified state, so that he didn't, you know, strike them dead, or they didn't fall dead as soon as they saw him. Uh, and they ate, and they saw God. So we see that there are two beings. And very clearly, when Jesus says, here in uh, John, the first chapter, Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. We recognize that when it says no one has seen God, He's talking about the one who is the Father. And yet we know that they saw God in the Old Testament, so it had to be the one who became Jesus Christ. Notice over in Psalm 110, Psalm 110. Here's an interesting passage that the scribes and the Pharisees somehow missed in all of their studies. It says, The Lord, or Yahweh, or the Eternal, said to my Lord, or to my Master, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So David is speaking here of... Yahweh, or the, the Lord, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This was quoted in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus quoted it in chapter 22 of Matthew, Matthew 22 and verse 41. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit up my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? So we see that the Messiah looked to a higher uh, power or a, a, a different, you know, the one that was over him. And so he, he spoke of him in that way, and David, under inspiration, wrote this. So we see two beings very clearly shown there in this passage. Now, in Luke, the 11th chapter, Luke 11, and verse 2, we have the, what is called the Lord's Prayer. Luke 11, verse 2, So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and it goes on from there. 
So he says, our Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying that his Father was in heaven. And so you pray to the Father in heaven, but where was Christ? He was on this earth. We also see this in Matthew, the sixth chapter, in verse 9. Our Father in heaven. In other words, you have a difference in location between the Father and the Son. And when you read through the New Testament, any of the four Gospels, that is is very evident that there are two different locations for the Father and the Son. When Christ looked up to heaven and, and prayed. The relationship between the Father and the Son. Let's notice that. The Trinity says that all are equal. In the Athanasian Creed, it says, And in this Trinity, no one is before or after, greater or less than the other. But all three persons are in themselves co-eternal and co-equal. And so we must worship the Trinity in unity and the one God in three persons. Whoever wants to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. In other words, if you don't understand their view of the Trinity, then you're not going to be saved, I guess. And yet, the apostles didn't seem to understand the Trinity. They they didn't write as though God was three persons. So I guess they may, must not be saved. But let's notice John, the fifth chapter. John 5. And we'll begin in verse 19. John 5 and verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. So Jesus clearly is subordinate to the Father. But what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them. Now, you know, if, if, if the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are like the three-leaf clover, I guess, or, or um, like several other forms of modalism, uh, you, you've got a real problem because if Christ died, who raised him up? Did he resurrect himself? No, he was resurrected by the Father. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may be saved. For as the Father raise, raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. You remember back in Genesis, the 18th chapter, when uh, Abraham uh, was speaking to the one who became Jesus Christ, he said, Shall not the, the, the judge of all the earth uh, do justly? The judge of all the earth. That's uh, Genesis 18, verse 25. So he's committed all judgment to the Son. He's committed that to him. Now, when you think about that, did they, did they, they vote on it or did they, the Father uh, give him that authority to do it? That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Uh, let's notice verse uh, 26. 
He says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. He's granted that, uh, that permission, as it were. And has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Uh, notice verse uh, 30. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Remember back in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We see that relationship between Father and Son, and that while they may agree on certain things, nevertheless, it is the Father that is uh, greater than the Son. Not just on the, when the Son was on this earth, but we see that relationship all the way through. Notice verse uh, 36. He says, But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Notice the Father has sent him. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. There again, we go back to uh, the time when when the uh, elders of Israel uh, saw God, the God of the Old Testament. So very clearly we see this relationship of father and son or two beings in the Godhead, one in the superior position. Let's notice another point here, John 14, 28. John 14 and verse 28. And this makes it very, very clear. When they say co-equals, John 14, 28 says, You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Now, some of these passages that we've read, someone could say, well, that's only when he was on the earth. But here he's saying he's going to go to his Father, and the implication is that even in that relationship, my Father is greater than I. That's what Jesus said, and yet the Trinitarians say that they are co-equals, no one greater than the other, which is a direct contradiction of this passage. Now, what about the oneness of God? Let's go back to Deuteronomy 6. This is the most important verse, at least among many Jews, if not all. Uh, this passage here. And verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the eternal our God, the eternal is one. That's what Scripture says, that God, the eternal, is one. So how do we understand the nature of Christ? How does, if you have just one being, uh, does that not fit into the Trinitarian concept of all being one somehow? Well, let's go back to the book of John, the 10th chapter, John 10. You know, John was probably dealing with some of these issues when he wrote toward the end of the first century. Already there were heresies coming up, and he was dealing with some of these things, and he's explaining the nature of the Father and the Son. And so he says here in verse 30, 
He says, I and my Father are one. That's Jesus speaking, I and my Father are one. Now, we've already seen that he described God the Father as being in heaven, and he was here on this earth, and it was the Father who would have raised him from the dead. He didn't raise himself. So what does he mean, I and my Father are one? We have to understand the concept of oneness according to the Bible. Let's go over to the 14th chapter of John and verse 8. John 14 and verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, I have, have I been with you so long, and you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Now, how did the Father dwell in him? Well, in the same way that he said that the Father would dwell in them through the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit. He said, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Now, how do we understand all this? This is this could be an enigma to, to us. But then in John, the 17th chapter, and it helps you to understand why when Worldwide got off track, they shortened the Passover service to leave out the words of Jesus on the night in which he was crucified. And eventually they got down to the old Protestant Catholic view of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, and some celebrated, you know, uh, you know, several times a year or uh, every every week, whatever it might be, depending on where they are, I suppose. But um, John really makes it very clear, or Christ does, as John records his words in John 17, verse 20. He said, "I do not pray for these alone." In other words, his disciples at that time but also for those who would believe in me through their word. And that's you and that's me, because we believe because of, of their preaching and down through the ages, it comes down to this time, and we are the result of what they, they did at, in the first century. He says, verse 21, John 17, 21, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So we are to be one. Now, as I look out here, I don't see a big blob. I, I see some bald heads. I see some gray heads. I see some young people. Uh, I, I see different colors of dresses and Suits and everything else. I see a lot of different people. And yet he was praying that we would all be one. Does that mean we're supposed to give everybody a group hug? Is that what he's talking about here? He says that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. So we are to be one with God the Father and Jesus Christ that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Just as we are one. Now, that's a pretty 
profound statement. But I think that we, we can begin to see is talking about in mind, in spirit, in approach, in the direction that we're going. Now, we don't reach that perfection in this life, do we? We all come up short in many different ways. But that is what Christ was praying, that we would all be one. We would all be unified together doing the work of God. That's what he was, was praying here. That we would think the same in terms of the overall direction of things. We're all individuals. We all have different, you know, personalities, different character. But, you know, our character should be more and more like Christ. But we are to be one just as they are one. Now, if we understand the oneness of how we are to be one, then we can understand how God the Father and Jesus Christ are one. They're just far more perfect in that, in that oneness. You know, being in each other in terms of their thinking and the direction and their purpose, uh, in, in this, this, they say this world, this, this eternity in, in reality. So that is such a clear statement, just as John 1, 1, verses 1 to 4, that, you know, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and, and so forth. And when you take that and you put it here with the oneness of God, it's not that difficult to understand. But when you delve into the, the, uh, the, the world of Trinitarianism, it gets really, really complex and goofy. And... You can get into all kinds of arguing and fighting over, you know, modalism and social Trinitarianism and Latin Trinitarianism and all the different forms of it. Or you can simply believe the words that God has given us. You know, the Trinity doctrine in reality denies that we can enter the family of God because it is a closed Godhead. It flies in the face of everything that we understand of the very purpose of life, to be born into the very family of God. You know, there's so many things that, that we haven't covered here. Uh, as an example, uh, when it says there in Genesis that let us make man in our likeness, in our image, how can we be in the likeness of a trinity? Think about it. If God is a trinity, in whatever form you want to make him, how can we be in his likeness and in his image? Well, they say, well, we just have a mind like God. Well, you know, stop and think about it. There's so much more that could be said. I would like to refer you to your ultimate destiny, where it shows what God is calling us for, the very purpose of our being, why we are alive. And what our hope is, the resurrection, to be born in the very family of God. And that is cut off by the doctrine of the Trinity. Because it is a closed Godhead that no one else can enter. And that's, that's really stated in their, their doctrine. I haven't read that, but, but uh, I mean, I haven't read it to you, but it, it, it's closed. No one can enter in uh, in any way, shape, or form. And so it denies the very purpose of our existence. The Trinity doctrine is found nowhere in the Bible, as many advocates of the doctrine freely admit. They do freely admit. It can't be found in the Old Testament, and New Testament evidence is a bit shaky, although there are some who would like to say it is. It really comes out of pagan philosophies, pagan ideas. It's a doctrine formulated long after the first century true apostles. It's a confusing and possible-to-understand doctrine. 
is called a strict mystery in Catholicism. A mystery is something that you cannot understand. It's a strict mystery. It's controversial even to this day as to how to explain it. Yet it is a central doctrine of professing Christianity. And most people accept it without question, not understanding it or knowing anything about its difficulties. They just believe in the Trinity, not even realizing how much amongst their own scholars they squabble and fight over the nature of the Trinity. And ultimately, when you understand the implications of this doctrine, it denies what the Bible clearly shows as our ultimate destiny, the very purpose of our lives.